Welcome into the Warehouse, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles and Major League Baseball. The Warehouse is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome into the warehouse. It's January 27th. I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, Matt Corey and Dr. Stephen Loflis. Uh, I'm you know, <laughs> laughing because we were, <laughs> I thought as we were talking off the air that I might have been screwing up Stephen's name the entirety of the time that he was uh, in part of this pod. But hey, I actually got it right. So one for me. Uh, so brief agenda tonight with the guys but wanted to have some baseball talk here in the uh doldrums of winter uh we're gonna miss the bomb cyclone that's going off in the northeast but we're still might get a dusting here in uh in baltimore uh matt we're gonna start with you because as our resident red sox expert uh, Big Pappy Ortiz, he's going to the Hall of Fame. He's the only one elected from the uh, Writers Association. Just what were your general, what were your thoughts there? Yeah, great career, and uh, congrats to him. Uh, what are your what are your memories of Ortiz as a player? I mean, there's nobody you'd want up in a, an important situation more than him. I mean, I don't know how, uh, you know, it, as as a you know, advanced analytics guy. Uh, I, I don't know how predictive that sort of thing is, but he, you know, he was he was in the the ninety ninth percentile of you know uh, of that um, that ability that you know that Dustin Pedroia talked about how he could slow the game down and you know I I don't know having never played Major League Baseball what that means you know uh, on a deep level, but um, whatever it is, he could clearly do it. Uh, the number of huge hits and uh, you know big home runs that he had in the postseason alone is is staggering, um, and uh, yeah, I think it's a I think it's a deserved honor, and it's it's a uh, you know it it, it speaks uh, speaks well of the man and and of the teams he played on, you know beyond beyond him specifically, you know there were there are steroid whispers about him and about everybody else on that ballot um but uh you know i i think i think it's a good thing for baseball to to try its best to move on you know uh, as as best it can and uh, i think you know putting ortiz in the hall of fame is is a good first step there um you know beyond ortiz the rest of them you know, I, I think Schilling probably would have got in this year if he hadn't opened his big yapper and started whining, but he's pretty good at that. So, uh, so he let it fly last year and told people to take him off the ballot and told the Hall of Fame to take him off the ballot, which they refused to do. But a lot of writers said, you know, well, if if you want to be off the ballot, I won't vote for you. So um, his support cratered, and that was that was kind of it. It'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, with the those guys once they get to the Veterans Committee. But, uh, but as for Ortiz, yeah, an, an amazing career, um, you know, what he meant to the Red Sox and the city of Austin was, uh, you know, about as, uh, 
you know, it, it was an intense feeling on uh, all the way around. And I think it's, uh, it's great to see him in the Hall of Fame. And I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say uh, in Cooperstown this uh, summer. Uh, it was a great run for the Red Sox. He was certainly uh, one of the true leaders of that uh, team that had a, uh, an extended run. And I think I have no problem with him in the Hall of Fame. He was a legitimate Hall of Fame player, terrorized the Orioles uh, for years. Certainly saw that up close and personal. Terrorized the uh, uh, the phone in the uh, Red Sox uh, clubhouse in the clubhouse in the Royal Park. No problem with him being in the Hall of Fame. Maybe do question the kind of hypocrisy of like if you have any problem with steroids or PEDs or otherwise, we're, we're okay with Ortiz, but like we're not okay over here. It seems like a a, a mental exercise uh, uh, there. Um, Stephen, just just your your thoughts there on, on Ortiz. <laughs> yeah, I mean he, he's a Hall of Famer, no question. It would be interesting to see because I feel part of Ortiz's Hall of Fame mystique is you know what you mentioned, Matt, his incredible ability in the clutch, particularly in the postseason. It'd be interesting. I still think he'd be a Hall of Famer, maybe not a first ballot, but if he kind of had the uh, Mike Trout problem of, you know, one postseason sort of thing, even if he performed well in one postseason, but without the three rings, he's probably still a Hall of Famer, just maybe not a first balloter. But yeah, Chris, to your point, it's really interesting, the mental gymnastics that go on between Ortiz and particularly, you know, this being the 10th year for Bonds and Clemens, uh, you know, baseball talking about it in a sense, trying to turn the page um, on the whole steroid questions with the Hall of Fame voting. And they're two of the biggest questions. I mean, the question's not going away. And I don't think Ortiz will let it go away because one of the things he said in his, you know, early interviews after he was elected was that to him, Bonds and Clemens are both Hall of Famers. So if, you know, when the when it comes time for the Veterans Committee and such to really get into that, hopefully, his hopefully uh, their contemporaries. I mean, it's hard to say they didn't seem to make too many friends during that time. And that seems to be a big thing with the veterans committee, unfortunately, but um, hopefully their contemporaries will, you know, bring them to where they should be, which is in Cooperstown. Because I mean, again, it's the story of baseball and you cannot tell that story without a guy who's won seven Cy Youngs and a guy who has won seven MVPs and who was even in the, in his younger days, one of the most terrifying power speed combos that baseball had ever seen. One final note on Ortiz. I'll just say uh, maybe not the best decision by the Minnesota twins. Uh, (laughs) When they uh, released him after the 2002 season, a season where he was productive. And I believe it was a $2 million contract that he was owned that they tried to get out of. And even if you, Due the inflation, it was still a two million dollar contract. It's not; it wasn't, you know, the most money. And if you look at the Twins teams in that decade, they could have had Ortiz's uh, that group. Or if he never makes his way to Boston, and you kind of play play that game, that's a interesting what if scenario. Uh, there's a there's a lot of you know we're we're very fond of talking about you know all the skill involved in in both baseball and in team building here, but there's a lot of luck that goes into it too. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe the Red Sox would have been able to, you know, fill the hole, uh, at least, uh, in, in some way, uh, you know, if they hadn't been able, been fortunate enough to sign Ortiz, but the fact that the twins released him and that, uh, Pedro Martinez recommended him to Theo Epstein and 
um, Epstein signed him, and I know the Yankees were interested in him, and so, so were some other teams. I mean, that very easily could have uh, gone in a different direction, and then uh, then what happens? I, I truly don't even want to think about what, <laughs> what the other options are uh, in other universes, but, uh, you know, things worked out. So that's a, that's a good thing, at least from where I stand. Moving on, we'll get to our CBA update for the week. Uh, Fangraphs, they had an article, the economic impact of yesterday's CBA proposals. Uh, Stephen, what were the takeaways there? It really is staggering how, in a sense, you know, when you look at the numbers, the raw numbers, you know, uh, Fangraphs focused on two particularly, you know, the question of raising the minimum salary and pre-arbitration bonus pools. And when you look at the raw numbers, I mean, the owners are proposing essentially a $10 million raise to pre-arb salaries over, um, you know, and the players are looking at about a $100 million raise, which, you know, a $90 million gap to my mind, in a sense, seems incredibly small. But, you know, and all told, when you combine those two things, it's, again, uh, $150 million. It's, why can't they get this together? Like, <laughs> I'd say in the grand scheme of the business of baseball, and granted, there's so many other issues that are in this and that are being discussed, but they seem so close together. And it seems like particularly ownership, like it's hard not to uh, side against the owners in this. It really is hard not to side against the owners in a sense. Um, it seems like they're being mule headed for the sake of being mule headed, basically. And it's hard to not just come to that takeaway in every single thing that you look at with this whole process. Uh, Matt, about you thoughts? Um, well, you know, it, it seems like they're coming together on this one idea, even if the specifics are really different, you know, just the fact that they can agree that, you know, that it, it, it's important to pay these players more money uh the 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 early pre-free agency players um the ones earning minimum salaries the ones in arbitration um you know the the article pointed out that there's you know whatever the percentage of players in baseball um i think it's like 50 percent or so I mean, Stephen can correct me if i'm off here but uh roughly 50 percent are are pre-arbitration um and so that means basically half of major league baseball players are earning the league minimum at any given point in time. Um, and so, uh, you know, even a small raise to the league minimum salary has a, has a large impact on, on the entirety of the, uh, of the union. So I think that's a, that's an important thing. And the fact that the, the owners seem willing to work with the players on that, even if the, their numbers aren't matching up quite yet, I think that's a step in the right direction. I mean, there's certainly a lot of other issues to discuss, um, but this is one step where they seem to be coming closer together. Yeah, um, one, one aspect where they, we're getting closer. Not really surprised to me that 50% are the pre-arbitration as they're the most valuable commodity in baseball, right? The, 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 the uh, yeah. cost control, you know, league average-ish uh, player, <laughs> you know, but um, – Stephen, I think you kind of hit the nail. This is just like one aspect in the negotiations, but you know, get this you know get this hurdle crossed so they can get get to the other aspects. The other thing they mentioned in the article was like, hey, they both removed some aspects of what they were you know posturing for. So maybe a little bit closer. We'll see. We're getting closer to spring training. It's about to turn to uh, February. 
it's time for pitchers and catchers. Let's uh, get this wrapped up. Matt? Yeah. Yeah, the, the one other thing that I think it seems like, uh, you know, players had certainly talked about wanting to accomplish with this CBA negotiation that seems like it's entirely off the table is uh, shrinking the number of years required to reach free agency. Um, it seems like at this point, that's just not going to happen. Free agency will remain the same. It's going to be six years. Now, they may negotiate at some point down you know, that seventh year that they kind of leave Adley Rushman in, in AAA for two months just in case to get that seventh year um, kind of idea. But uh, if they're able to get rid of that, I would be surprised at this point. And, and it seems like six years is, is just going to be the, the law of the land, at least for the next CBA. Well, that is a nice bridge to our next topic, uh, talking about Adley Rutschman. Uh, our colleagues at BSL and uh, the On the Verge podcast, they put together their top 50 Orioles prospects for uh, January 22 here. At the top, of course, Adley Rutschman, no surprise, top prospect in all of baseball. And right behind him, Grayson Rodriguez, the second best prospect, uh, at least by uh, some sources, and second best, obviously, in the Orioles organization. 50 prospects deep. Matt, what stands out? Uh, I think the depth. You know, it, you can just just pull up the list and look at the guys in the 30s, and, and they're not nobodies. Like, they have a lot of guys even in that range who could be major leaguers who could make an impact on the major league roster. Um, so I think that's, that's really impressive. The other thing that this is more specific, but the, the thing that, you know, I, uh, I noticed is that Heston Kierstad is eighth on the list. This is the guy that was just picked in the, the second overall in the draft. Um, and I mean, obviously he's, he had health problems and hasn't played, although he seems to be healthy now, uh, hopefully. Um, but just the fact that he's eighth on the list, you know, like so many, even with the health problems, I feel like for, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of teams, he would be in the top five, if not higher than, you know, towards the top of the top five, but the Orioles have enough, uh, you know, enough depth and strength that he's all the way down at eighth. Steven, what do you what do you see here? Um, a lot of depth, no question. And while there's a lot of depth, I worry about some of the ceiling. Like you know, there are guys that have high high ceilings, like the Kobe Mayos of the world, and um, like DL Hall. But those ceiling guys, outside of Grayson Rodriguez and Adley Rutschman have a lot of questions that they have to be able to meet that they have to be able to answer to be able to meet that ceiling and hope i mean you know with depth you can do what the rays have done and just continually cycle through until you find the guy that ultimately hits and becomes the guy that reaches the ceiling or trade out a bunch of guys to get that missing piece or something like that but i do worry a little bit about some of the ceiling if you know the it's one thing to graduate major leaguers and like replacement level major leaguers, but a team of replacement major leaguers doesn't necessarily get you to the playoffs. So I'm hoping to see a couple of guys take uh, a leap to really be beyond just uh, replacement major leaguers, but to be real potential all-star types, you know, guys like Gunnar Henderson is a guy that I'm really interested in just performing very well at a young age above um, where you'd expect for a 20 year old. And I'm still a big Colton Kowser fan, but I don't, 
to, to really be able to reach that all-star level, he's got to either, uh, you know, hit like no one's business or develop a little bit of power, which again, he's only been in pro ball a year. There's room there, but I just worry a tiny bit about, you know, if they continue to gr- try to just grow it all at home, uh, where some of that ceiling's going to come from. Uh, thinking back to your experience with the Rays, how does the uh, Orioles system kind of compare to maybe stylistically to what what the Rays were doing? <laughs> Very differently. Like the Orioles definitely don't seem to care about strikeouts at all. High strikeout numbers from hitters at least. Whereas, um, you know, we were... Uh, we didn't mind a guy running some high strikeout totals if he could back it up with the power and all that. And the Orioles are focusing on guys that can, you know, that can mash it, but also it comes with strikeouts. But the Orioles take it to that one extra step. And I mean, once again, the the selection of Cowser last year in the draft was a breath of fresh air to me because I mean, here's a guy that's walking at a higher, walking more than he strikes out, which is a huge rarity in this system. So. Um, stylistically it's different because I mean, again, Orioles are much more on the, uh, three true outcome side of thing and a lot less pitching so much less pitching, um, especially, uh, high ceiling, uh, sort of pitching. Uh, there's another article at the site or other colleagues, Zach, uh, Eisner, he had his second article, uh, with us. Uh, he wrote about the, the lineup such as it is uh, projected lineup uh, where do you guys agree disagree Stephen you can start first <laughs> um, it seemed to be a bit of a rosy view of the lineup like I mean I, I mean if you don't take a rosy view with the Orioles you get depressed real fast for like a while <laughs> but um, it, it you know advanced numbers uh, can cut both ways like you took mentions you know Santander is improving the pitch selection and all that but even uh, if you view some of the chase rate sort of stuff, if you go to a different set of advanced numbers, um, based like on his, on base percentage, uh, <laughs> yes, like I mean, I say if we want to go just playing bottom base percentage, yes, Santander is pretty rough. But um, even under the amount that his uh, pitch selection is improving by like swing take metrics, he's one of the worst in baseball in terms of runs added based off of that. So again, um, Santander. I really think his days are numbered, unfortunately, with the Orioles. Just there's too many prospects that are starting to knock on the door that um, it, it's really st- started to push him out. So he he's probably the one that gives me the most question to be like, yeah, it might be improving, but I don't think it's improving enough. And I don't think I, I think time's really sort of out for him. Any other player uh, that Zach mentioned that stands out, Matt? Um, well, this is sad, but I'm going to say this anyway. Uh, I don't think it matters. And, uh, the thing that came to my, yeah, the thing that came to my head is deck tear deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah. Um, so I actually wrote that in my notes cause I'm a jerk. Uh, you don't think it matters that Jacob nodding would, uh, would, you know, <laughs> I, I no, had to check that twice. It's like, oh yeah, right. If, if Jacob yeah, Nottingham uh, matters, we're in trouble. <laughs> no, but I, I think what um, this brings up an interesting discussion, which is one that I think we've touched upon before, but it's worth bringing up again. So the looking at the lineup, there are obviously a lot of holes in the lineup, um, you know, including that a catcher. And, you know, obviously there's there's a hole there for a reason. It's because they have Adley Rushman and Adley Rushman will be up as soon as they're 
sure that, you know, they're going to get the maximum amount of, of service time out of him that they can get whenever that is. Um, and so there's, there's a hole in the lineup waiting for Adley Rushman because of course there is right. But there's a, there's holes in the lineup in a lot of places that look to me like they're designed to be filled by guys in the minors. And we've yeah. discussed before that you can't build a team entirely on homegrown players, or at least it's never been done before. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it's going to be very difficult to do it. I mean, to expect that you're going to hit on right. everybody you have internally, even if you have system-wide depth and you have multiple options internally, it's still yeah. going to be hard to hit every position. But uh, but if you yes. look at the list, if you look at the the Verge's list of top prospects and you look at the holes in the lineup, there are some some matchings there. You know, you you definitely. I've, I've had I've had some of the same thought, Matt. I I think that's a an interesting takeaway. Um, and maybe that leads us to uh, our last main topic for the night. I gave twenty two thoughts about the twenty two Orioles, probably maybe twenty two too many, but I was having fun writing. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that was my extended thoughts. Uh, takeaways there. What would you like to discuss, Matt? You can go ahead. Uh, well, you talked about win totals, and you said you wanted to see seventy as a as you know a, a, something to reach for this season. Yeah, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable goal to attempt to achieve. Now, it's not one that the Orioles have attempted to achieve yet, right? They're, they're obviously not attempting to go there. You said that right now you only see 62 wins. So, you know, you'd be looking for to add eight wins, which is a significant amount of wins. So, you know, this brings up the question. I mean, is that what they should be doing when the free agent market opens back up? Should they be going after eight wins? Um, so uh, yeah, all right, let's just, let's start there. So, uh, earlier today, I spoke with uh, Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs and ESPN, and uh, uh, he's an Orioles fan, and he gave his take, and basically it was he doesn't want to see them adding anybody, wants to go with the internal young talent. Wins obviously aren't going to matter. This is a story that I've said previously for the previous years and just move forward. I certainly understand the argument. You know, I've made it myself in previous years. I guess just at this point, while he was preaching uh, further patience, you know, at this point, I just want to see some level of progression. And I also feel some of the guys that whatever name we want to call those, I don't want to call them 4A arms, but for let's call them 4A arms for right, right now, that group, it's uh, I'd like to see them go and earn their way back, <laughs> you know, and earn their next opportunity, even if you're adding further stopgap type starters and just kind of, you know, stop hemorrhaging the bleeding. But I understand the other argument. Um, Steven, kind of, you can jump in there. Uh, it's going to be a long 22. Um, <laughs> um, uh, do you, I'm, can I ask you, Steven, yeah, do you think that they can do it? Can they, can they build it? Are they smart enough that they can build a team entirely from homegrown players or maybe no. with just very few? Uh, very okay. few? Maybe. Entirely internal? No. No. Or if they're going to do that, 
it's going to take so long that uh, that Chris will absolutely lose it, or <laughs> uh, the fans will storm the warehouse, or um, there won't be just any fans left. That too. Um, yeah, I mean, just to be able to build up an entire competing. Like you can build a team internally entirely and it could suck, but, um, but to build a completely entirely internal competing team would take a decade's worth of losing to build up that sort of talent level, like literally entirely internally, not trading. Well, I was just going to say, guess what? (laughs) Yeah, no, we're getting on half a decade at this point. To build a 90 win team in the American league East where basically every year you can count on New York and Boston being 90 win caliber teams even their off teams are typically there tampa has been that for an extended amount of time now and toronto's on the ascent and this year will be uh hunting 90 wins so the other four teams 76 games against those those teams you got to build a team even if the playoffs wind up being extended that's capable of winning 90 games. <laughs> yeah, and you I have mean, to pretty much shoot at winning half of those games. Yeah. Yeah. You have to win whatever it is, whatever the math is. Half of yeah. there you go. You got to win 38 <laughs> of those games. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, at at this point, 422, like again, we're getting to the stage where the young players, you're evaluating them and all that. By this point, yes, you're gonna have the guys like Cedric Mullins who go four or 500 plate appearances in the majors do absolutely nothing, show nothing, and then just appear out of nowhere to um, all-star levels. Like there are going to be those sorts of players, but at this point you're going to start having an idea, especially with pitchers. There is truly so much more information about pitchers from the pitch FX data that you can break down. And yes, there's stuff you can do. There is pitch design. There is tweaking of arsenals and all that. But at a certain point, you know what you've got with those guys um, because, you know, you can own AAA with, um, you know, not elite stuff, but major league hitters are going to punish you. And you can see that not elite stuff in AAA in Norfolk or in Baltimore because, again, the data is so rich, so deep, and you can see that. So at this point, you have to start looking at – Either, again, shifting those guys' roles, allowing them to move to the bullpen, add three, four miles an hour to their fastballs because they're only going one inning, or start shipping them out for, again, the next churn of prospects or packaging them for some guy that can actually give you 150 innings in the majors instead of 30 and then back to Norfolk, or you know, 500 plate appearances in the majors. At this point, we have to kind of have a sense of what those guys are. You can't just bring them back for another year of cycling between Camden Yards and Norfolk. Um, I mean, you could do that this year, I suppose, but you know, what are you going to do that the year after? Like at some point you have to make the move on those guys, whatever it is. And I think this year is that year. And yeah, that winds out usually being another year of 60 wins or whatever like that, but it can be still be a year of progress if you really dis- make the decision on those guys. And that's honestly what I'm looking at at 22, just making those decisions on those guys and basically start pairing the pool a little bit. Yeah, I like that's that. Interesting. It's, another, it's another year of information. Uh, either way, you're not contending this year. But at the end of the year, there needs to be some level of progression of who are you moving forward with. And, and uh, 
hopefully you're going to see seen internally some level of of ascension from uh, your minor league ranks and any of these other people that have a remaining opportunity, let's say Santander who starts a year of a couple hundred at bats, some of these other arms in whether it's in the starting or, or relieving capacity, they have an opportunity right now. We'll see who grabs it. So, uh, anything else there, uh, you know, uh, that you, you wanted to hit on? Um, I got one other thing if, if you want, yeah, sure. Um, you mentioned um, that you agreed with leaving Rushman and Grayson Rodriguez in the in the minors to gain that seventh year, uh, if that is going to be the way that the CBA is going to be written. And I think that's a perfectly defensible position. And um, I agree with the Rushman part of it. Um, as for Rodriguez, you know, you noted in your piece that he's a high school draft pick and he's got whatever it is, 80 innings above high A. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of inexperience there. Um, but there's also, there's the finite you only get so many, bullets. Yeah, you, you only get so many bullets theory. The uh, ticking which, time which, bomb, 10 step, whatever you want to call it. All yeah, that sort of exactly. Thing. The same, right. the same argument can be made for Rutschman as the catcher. No, I, I mean, as you only have so much time behind, uh, behind there. So part of me, part of me feels what you're what you're saying there, Matt. And I also really with Rutschman in particular, and I feel the same with Rodriguez that if you want both of them, you know, play them and do what Stephen you know wrote about a, a few weeks ago, and what we've always said is. Go out and extend them through their arbitration years and, and tack right. on a, you know, tack on an additional year. Go get them now while they're you have tack the most on tack on ten years. I mean, look what look what the Rays just did. If the Rays can afford to yeah. extend Wander Franco, then the Orioles can afford to extend Adley you'll, Rushman. You'll never have more leverage than you do now, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and the truth is, they have all the leverage they need because they can write a check as big as they want to, right? Sure. Yeah. And there is there's a number out there that he'll sign for it in the next 10 years. And what is that number? I don't know. But I'm sure the Orioles could find out by asking. By asking, right. I mean, if you're Adley, you know, and you know the history of uh, uh, catchers, and I'm not going to, you know, throw out the, you know, career ending, but uh, his track could easily be uh, Weeders and not Posey. <laughs> and, uh you know what's your what's your overall career value? <laughs> how much right. do, you, do you want to you know cash in now? But yeah, how much do you believe in these guys? And um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think those are that's a reasonable way to go. And considering how much you know how much money the Orioles have tied up in in major league talent at this point, i.e., almost none. Uh, I think it certainly makes sense to uh, if you're I'm not going to give there. free agent yeah. contracts to free agents. Give free agent contracts to your own elite prospects. Zimborski said uh, he thought uh, that Routh would be a three and a half to four win player this year <laughs> and be their, uh, you know, could be their all star rep if they had him up soon enough. So I think that's an entirely reasonable take. I believe it 100%. Uh, so, I mean, that's if he's. Uh, I mean, how incredibly, yeah. <laughs> how incredibly stupid would they feel if something happened to either of those guys and they got hurt in the minors? Like, what a massive yeah. waste that would be. 
True. Yeah. Anyway. So it was fun, a little cathartic for me to bust uh, right 3,700 words or so, just kind of sitting there. Yeah, I was just like, oh, cool. This is, this is it. Uh, if you're an Orioles fan, you should be reading Chris on the Orioles. <laughs> yeah, you could just hear me uh, if you watch uh, Matt and Steven. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, uh, I think know, as they have I... very logical defensible pieces, and you can just see me with my veins bursting in my head as uh, uh, <laughs> each week. But it comes through closer. the pixels of every word, Chris. <laughs> every word it comes clear through. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, one thing I tried to say is. I am pretty excited about where they're going. I mean, I might, I might quibble and on a certain day be pretty irritated that it seems to me that they're they're gearing more for twenty four than doing what I think should be necessary for twenty three. And I feel like even with twenty two, they could be doing more. Obviously, we're in a stoppage right now, but more than they were doing prior to uh, the lockout. But I overall. I'm pretty optimistic and more than I ever have been about the about where the Orioles are going. And that's really because I do believe in Elias and, and believing at the head they have, uh, you know, somebody who I, I, you know, I, I think is really gets it. You know, they've had quality people in the front office before, but I don't think they've ever had the the commitment from ownership and above. And um, Peter Angelos never would have hired Elias, John Angelo's hiring him feels like a, a change in direction to me. We'll see if they reinforce that going forward and the arbitrate offering, um, you know, what we were just talking about with Rochman and, and Rodriguez in terms of uh, uh, offering contracts through their arbitration years. That would be a that would be different than anything the approach of the Orioles of anything historically. So we'll see if uh, they do that. Uh, but that's it for us for tonight. Uh, come and join us, BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. Lots of discussions still on the uh, new dimensions at Oriole Park. Uh, also discussions on the Hall of Fame and uh, uh CBA. Come and join us. Uh, need more uh, of your thoughts. So if you're out there listening, please uh, like to see you. Uh, so for Matt, for Stephen, thanks for joining us, and we'll be back. Well, we'll be back as soon as we have something else to talk about. But uh, <laughs> take care. <laughs>